0: What is happening? Apparently, leprosy is on the rise in Florida. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm sorry
1: to hear that, Florida.
0: Right. That's I. Really unfortunate. Did you know that one of the main causes of leprosy in the United States, do you know what it is? I'm going to say cats. Not cats. It is animal related, though. Are sure it's, it's not a cat? I'm positive. Is it related to the cat? I would say, look, I'm not a cat person, so I'd be <laughs> right up there. If le- cats cause leprosy, I'd be leading the charge. <laughs> to get Down with cats. Down with cats. Down with cats. <laughs> But uh, it's armadillos. <laughs> of all things.
1: Help me understand the connection between Florida and armadillos. Well, I don't
0: know other okay. than the armadillo, apparently it lives in its nail bed. It's like the perfect oh, okay. condition for okay. leprosy to exist. So and if you get
1: clawed by an armadillo, then you, you better almost go to the hospital. certainly have leprosy. <laughs> totally. Absolutely you have leprosy. So well, armadillos kind of look like cats if you glance at them quickly. I think there's a relationship there, even if we're unaware of it at this point. that's true. that's true. I've never met a nice armadillo. Have't met any armadillo and I've never met a nice cat. so well, uh, well okay I've met a, I've met a nice cat before. Have Remember you, we went to uh, famous in Oregon and there was that cat at the counter that was like all over me yeah I was I was appalled. but shocked. But it it scratched you. it did scratch so me. see, you've never met a nice cat even in its niceness, it was still trying to cause me harm right Successfully it did so.
0: Well, I wonder how many of our cat people we've offended on here. We're gonna get tweets. We're gonna get messages. We're gonna get.
1: You've never met my cat. It's okay. Keep your cat, dude. Are we willing to spit truth or aren't we? Let's just let's right? just draw the lines. We need to, right? I mean, the devil prowls around like a roaring golden retriever. Uh, no, no don't say that. Don't say that. Doesn't say That's that. a cat, people. Yeah,
0: yeah come fact, on. Cats—they didn't even talk about cats. Cats were like, like Satan considered a cat before he took the snake in the Garden of Eden. It was like, no, I'm not even going to go that low.
1: Too evil, he yep. said. Yeah, I can't. <laughs> Too low for me, and
0: I can't do that. <laughs> well, hey, if you're still with us, then congrats. You Thank have a dog, you. and uh, we are, are glad that you're with us. And we're in Psalm 68 and 69 in the Old Testament, and then Romans chapter three. So let's dive in because. Romans 3 is massive and uh, let's we've got two psalms that we want to get to as well that are equally as important but just different in content. So Psalm 68. Uh, psalm 68, this is a, a psalm of victory and it's a psalm of celebration and uh, we don't have a, a, a specific... Historical context given in the superscription, but based on the content, some have postulated that this is uh, maybe connected to the return of the Ark from 2 Samuel chapter 6. Yeah, I heard that. Um, That David, if you remember the scene there, it starts out not great at the beginning of 2 Samuel 6 because they put the Ark on the cart and it falls off and uh, Uzziah reaches out to to steady the the Ark and he dies. But uh, then things go well for Obed-Edom and David says, well, let's bring the Ark back. And so they bring it back. And there's dancing and they're singing. And you remember the scene, they're dancing and singing. It says they're with all of his might, David was. And it caused Saul's daughter, Michael, to despise him in her heart. Well, some have thought that this is what they were singing is Psalm 68. We just speculate on that, but it is a psalm of celebration. It's a psalm of rejoicing in God's goodness. God's power, verse three, the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God with jubilant joy. Just that reiteration over and over and over again of the the concept of of celebration and joyfulness there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then the descriptions of God there as the the shelter, the stronghold, the one that helps the weak. Look at verse five, the father of the fatherless, protector of the widows. Yeah, so good is God in his holy habitation. You get in verses 11 through 14, a picture of these women that are celebrating, they're singing, they're, they're rejoicing in the victory of the king there. And uh, this was common. Remember when David would return from battle, they would come out and they would sing, Saul has killed his thousands and David his 10,000s. And so the women were often part of the celebration in return from victory in return from battle. And then there's this issue of the Mount of Bashan. Pastor did you notice anything or find anything about the Mount of Bashan in your research? Cows.
1: Cows. Cows of Bashan. Cows of Bashan. What were the cows of Bashan? They were the women. I mean, I don't want to get too offensive <laughs> here, but they. they <laughs> honestly, I, I, I actually didn't do any digging in this. I just remember. Yeah. Cows of Bashan, and it was a reference to the ladies. Yes. And ladies, we're not calling you cows, but... Someone did. Someone Not did. you, but someone called ladies cows. Well, Bashan was held to be
0: the mountain uh, in close proximity to uh, to Jerusalem there, but it was on the other side of the Jordan. Um, and so it looked down or looked across from the other side of the Jordan at Mount Zion. And that's the contrast here is uh, the Mount Bashan was associated with idol worship and with even the, the god Molech. If you've studied the god Molech, just an awful, awful, horrible god. Uh, child sacrifice and other things involved with Molech. And so here, the, it's a time of Bashan and Bashan is meant to be looking with jealousy at God's goodness to Israel and to Mount Zion there. Uh, Verse 18 is a a quote that Paul picks up in Ephesians 4, 8, applies it to Jesus. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train. So a messianic reference there in verse 18 Uh, just good things throughout the rest of the Psalm as well, a petition in verses 28 that God would continue to work salvation for his people. Uh, so they're not taking it for granted. Even with this time of great joy, they're still dependent on God. And, uh, and then the, a call to the nations, uh, all Psalm two to say, Hey, come to the Lord. Don't, don't find the same fate as Bashan and these other nations come to the Lord and worship him rather than suffering under his
1: destruction. I think one of the themes that I saw in this, particular psalm is that sense of God's impending victory over every foe, every person that stands against him. The beginning of the psalm, I really it struck me how he described God's enemies, like smoke and like wax. You know, smoke is basically insubstantial. You don't have to work very hard to get smoke out of your face as long as you're not encompassed in it. Kind of wave your hand a little bit and then it's gone. It's diffused. Wax doesn't need a whole lot of effort to, to melt. It might appear solid and substantial, unlike smoke, but it doesn't really require a whole lot to do away with it. In the same way, when God decides to deal with his enemies, there's not going to be some major flex on God's part, like he has to get geared up and get all ramboed out to deal with his enemies. God just has to be like, out of my way, I'm done. Mm -hmm. Meh, I'm going to dismiss you now. You're done. That's enough of you. And that kind of goes back to our reading in Psalm 2, where God's laughing at them in derision, holds them in derision. Whoever would dare to stand against the king, God shall arise and his enemies shall be scattered like cockroaches. Um, or scattered, like to cat. He will to cat them. <laughs> That's kidding. That's not the way it means at all. Cats? Right. Scat. To scat. Cat. Cat them. To scat them out of the way.
0: Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, to that point, though, Revelation 20, as we go to Revelation 20, which we'll get there by the end of the year, you've got this scene with all the armies of the earth gathered against God. Right. Armageddon.
1: Right. And we always picture that. The battle of battles. Like, just, oh, like the, the tanks are being fired, rolled out, right. the the, hel- the the helicopters and the tanks. And doesn't require any of that. Go read it.
0: There's not a shot fired. There's no. not a shot fired. God just comes back. Jesus comes back. We're with him, following
1: him in, in armies arrayed in white linen. It's kind of anticlimactic, actually. And it's over. It's over. Because he's God. Like in Endgame, there was at least a really fun battle to watch. It's like, oh, the, the, I mean, but that's not the way the Christian story ends. Right. The way that God actually wrote it is that the enemies don't pose a threat. Right. He laughs at them. Right. And he's like, you're, you're no challenge to me whatsoever. And I, I, Psalm 68 reminded me of that and just really gave me a sense of confidence. And one, I, I love the fact that our God is the conquering king. There's no one who's going to stand before him. Right. Secondly, if you're on the other side of him, man, what are you doing? Why fight? Right. Why, why put up a fight that you're not going to win?
0: I don't get it. Which, remind me to get back to this because there's a good connection point to our New
1: Testament reading as oh, well on okay. that point. All right. I will remind you. Psalm 69. Uh, hey, Pastor uh, PJ, reminder.
0: Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, Psalm I meant 68. like later. I meant oh. like after. Okay. Yeah. When we thanks Duly though, noted. I appreciate that dismiss for five minutes. <laughs> um, Psalm 69 here, you have a plea for deliverance from, uh, from David here based basically essentially on God's mercy and steadfast love alone. I mean, he's just, it's, it's clear here. He is totally dependent upon God. Verse three, I'm weary with crying out and my throat is parched. Um, it's, it's looking to the Lord and to the Lord alone, uh, to deliver and it's not just his personal suffering cuz notice verse 9 here for zeal for your house has consumed me the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen upon me so I've david ha- has what say that again i've heard that one before yeah yeah exactly from somebody else right but right. here in this context david is looking at the enemies mocking god and he's taking that personally. And that was from the very beginning with David. You remember when Goliath and David met on the battlefield, one of the things that prompted David to go was he said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who dares taunt God, yeah, right? And defy the armies of the living God. Exactly. So David has long felt a personal connection to the reputation of God. And so here we see that come out in verse nine. But to your point, Pastor Rob, this is applied
1: to Jesus as well. What's the context in the new Testament where this is applied to Jesus? Well, Jesus is cleansing out the temple. He is doing the work of what would assume be the Messiah. He comes in, he cleans house, he's whipping people, he's turning over tables. The disciples will later recall that event and say, ah, we get it, zeal for your house consumes me. And they see that not only as a as a figurative language, but actually, hey, he's coming to the actual, the air quotes here, the, the temple of God and cleaning the house out because it's not what it's there for. He's, he's, he's there to fulfill all that God has promised in terms of a having a place where people could connect with him. Verses
0: 13, 14, 16, just these pleas from David. And what struck me here, especially verse 13, as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. So David's humbly saying, God, I'm willing to wait on your timing. I'm just asking you at your in in your time according to your plan according to your will that you would by your steadfast love answer me in your saving faithfulness verse 14 deliver me verse 16 again answer me for your steadfast love is good again the theme of this psalm i think is david just casting himself on god's mercy and steadfast love and trusting that that is the reason why god would respond why god would deliver why god would act and uh, and and do uh, justice against the enemies of him and against david's own enemies as well um The psalm ends in 34, 35, 36, again, with a petition to creation to to worship God for God will, verse 35, save Zion and build up the cities of Judah and people shall dwell there again and possess it. The offspring of his servant shall inherit it and those who love his name shall dwell in it. So forward looking uh, forward looking here to, I think, the the Messianic kingdom, the millennial kingdom uh, here in, in the end of the psalm as well
1: want to point out to you one more time, verse 31, notice what God delights in more than sacrifices. He wants the praise of his name with a song. He wants thanksgiving from our hearts. So again, just a constant reminder for us that God doesn't want our external religion. He doesn't want us to just go through the motions. He wants us. He wants all of us to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, as you will later hear Jesus say. But more on that soon. Let's jump to Romans 3. Romans
0: three. Yeah. Pastor Rod, you and I were texting about this a little bit earlier this morning. Like our, our plan gives us 11 verses and acts of narrative about how Paul sailed under the lees to different cities. And then it's like,
1: and here's all of Romans. Here's three. just take a big old bite. Have you ever taken a bite of something? And it's like, Oh man, I, I messed up. I can't swallow. I, I can't swallow. I just, you just got to eject, and everyone else around you is going to know exactly what's happening. And like, ah, uh, you should know better by now. Don't you know how to eat? Well, that's what I felt like with Romans 3 today.
0: We're going to exercise some restraint. I'm going to exercise some restraint here. I don't here know,
1: man. We're, we're, we're only 12 minutes in. We're going to do we're going to do okay here.
0: We'll look at the end real quick of, of chapter 2, which I know is not <laughs> an encouraging start since we just said there's so much. Open your Bibles
1: to the beginning of Romans.
0: <laughs> Notice <laughs> the first word again. <laughs> but it's important for us to gain the context. Remember Paul said, uh, no one is a Jew who is one merely outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, And circumcision is a matter of the heart, okay? Paul was a master uh, rhetorician. In other words, he was a master philosopher, master uh, of argumentation. And so one thing that a good preacher will always do is anticipate objections. And that's something that Paul does all throughout the the book of Romans. So Paul has just made that point. He's writing, he's indicting the remember in this context, he's indicting Israel, he's indicting the Jews, saying, Hey, look, it's not about the law, it's not about the Old Testament, it's about something more than that. It's not about external conformity, it's about internal, it's about who you are internally. Now in chapter three, he's gonna anticipate the objection from those that are reading this letter, specifically those from the a Jewish background. And that's how he does this so often with questions. And he opens that way in chapter three, verse one, then what advantage has the Jew? In other words, then what good is it? Is there any good to being a Jew here? And he says, yes, the, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. The oracles of God, Pastor Rod, is another way of describing God's word, God's word, right? Yeah. The old Testament scripture. And he's saying that, that they were given the oracles of God. Um, and then he anticipates this objection then, which he kind of goes through in the rest of verses uh, two through eight there, three through eight there, where the the Jews are essentially here, if I can boil it down this way, they're saying, okay, well then is God being unfaithful to his word? Is God being unfaithful to his promises? If you're telling us that it's not the Mosaic law, that is what will justify a person before God. Is he somehow saying that, that, it's it's okay to just sin because grace is there and you may already be run into Romans chapter 6 if you know the rest of the story but Paul right here is just dealing with the Jewish people and the concept of what is the law and in fact the the key verse in Romans 3 is 320 so if you jump down to 320 it says this for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin so Paul is simply trying to to establish that reality in Romans chapter three with the Jews, that the law is not there to justify us.
1: I wonder if you stumbled over verse eight, as you're reading through, why not do evil that good may come. It seems as I read it, it felt strange to me at first, like, okay, that seems like a fairly, I don't know, a a, a kind of a rudimentary argument from his, his, uh, his opposition, but I think it does help us play a certain role in our minds of how Paul intends us to understand this. Paul is not suggesting for any sense that grace is to be a mechanism for our indulgence. And again, to Pastor PJ's point, he's going to get to that even more so and develop that point further. But just know Paul's beginning to set up the argument for you to help you understand, man, grace is as amazing as you think it is. It is that free and it is that fantastic. It is all-encompassing. It serves to, to demonstrate God's glory by justifying us by faith. And not by our works. So if that's the case, then some might unlawfully, un, in an ungodly way, argue well, if that's the case, if my sinning results to God's glorification, then well. Let me let me allow that to cover in my life because he'll get more glory from that. And of course, that's not Paul's intention. Right. In fact, if you've been confused by verses 5, 6, 7,
0: and 8 there, uh, just it's probably helpful to understand, aside from verse 6 really, Paul is personifying the arguments of his opposition. Verse 5, he's saying, this is what my opponents are going to say. Verse 7 through 8, he's restating that same argument there. So these are those that are trying to counter him. And again, Paul's anticipating their objections so that he kind of cuts their feet out from under them before they get a chance to argue that. Pastor Rod, you mentioned faith there. If you mark your Bibles, I would encourage you, starting now, get out your pens, get out your your pencils, get out your highlighters, and start noting how many times the word faith or believe or believed or belief comes up in these next few chapters, because we're about to pivot to getting to the, the crux of the good news of the gospel. Paul's sure. still setting up the bad news here, and that's verses nine and following, and, and we've hit on this because we've been through these psalms right. recently, which is helpful uh, but he's quoting from the Old Testament, quoting from the Psalms, establishing this doctrine that we've talked about here called total depravity. And again, that's not that we are as depraved as we possibly could be, but that we are thoroughly saturated with a sin, sin nature. We are depraved. Comprehensively. Right. Total. Right. And that's what he's getting there in that center section of Romans chapter 3. And his culmination of his argument is in verse 20 there. Look, by works of the law, no one can overcome that. No one will be justified in his sight. So he's writing to the Jews that are reading this going, hey, Yes, there's an advantage. You've you've had the Old Testament. You know these things, but the advantage is not that you're better off because you're obedience, because you're conformity, because the law does not save us. Rather, it does quite the opposite. It shows us our need for salvation. Mm -hmm. And that's where he goes in, in verse 21. And here's the pivot, and here comes the good news. He says, because now the righteousness of God, which is what we need, which is what the law can't provide, has been shown or manifested apart from the law. Right, And this is where we get into the gospel as you and I know it today, that the gospel is that righteousness from God comes by faith in Jesus. Look at verse 24. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Wow. There's a big word here in verse 25 that would be helpful for us to unpack a little bit there,
1: and that's the word propitiation. Pastor Rod, why don't you explain propitiation for us? Easy. The word can be done and can understand in a few ways. First, you should see propitiation as a more of a kind of synonymous of the word sacrifice. It was a sacrifice, but it has deeper and richer roots in that. You should also know that in your Bibles, Hebrews 9, 5 will cross reference and use the same word. Um, the idea conveys appeasing, uh, appeasing God, offering a sacrifice that that Expiates, which is a word that would be related to the word for expiate means to atone for sin. Propitiate and expiate work together. They both function as synonymous, closely related words of the word sacrifice. The idea conveys that Jesus was offered as a sacrifice that would appease God's righteous wrath which is exactly what's happening in this context here. Jesus absorbs the wrath that we deserve. He is the ones for all sacrifice given for us. Again, the cross reference for you is Hebrews 9, 5, which by the way, in Hebrews 9, 5, the word is used for the mercy seat. It is the place of God's appeasement, God's atonement. You might remember the day of atonement when the high priest would enter into the Holy Holies and sprinkle blood uh, Sprinkle blood on the the uh, between the between the what are those guys? the cherubim, thank mm. you very much. brain uh, eventually working. but this is the idea here. So Jesus is offered as the propitiation for our sins. And that's so
0: important because of verse 26 because that's what allows verse 26, God to be the just to remain just himself and mm. be the justifier, amazing of the one who has faith in Jesus. His wrath had to be propitiated. It had to be satisfied. It had to be appeased. And that was by the blood of Jesus.
1: Do you remember that, that, uh, that controversy a few years back for the song uh, In Christ Alone? The wrath of God was satisfied. Mm-hmm. One congregation, or uh, no congregation, one denomination was asking to change the lyrics because they didn't believe in penal substitutionary atonement, which is right. what we're seeing here, right? Right.
0: Right. But it's, it's biblical. And here we see it right in, in Romans chapter three, that without the propitiation, without Christ's blood on the cross for you and me, then God can't be just and declare us justified because we're not, we're guilty. But because the payment of our sin has been paid by Christ. And we have second Corinthians five twenty one says received his righteousness. Now we are righteous because God's wrath has, has been satisfied.
1: Can you quickly break down penal substitutionary atonement? Yeah. Just kind of layman's terms here.
0: Penal means uh, penalty. We get our word penalty from it. And so the penalty of our sin is the wages of our sin is death, right? Romans 6, 23 says that. Substitutionary, you think about that, someone that takes your place. And then atonement is that word that has to do with propitiation, the satisfaction of God's wrath. So if someone else took our place and bore the penalty, penal, substitutionary, took our place, atonement, and satisfied God's wrath against our sins. So Jesus was our substitutionary atonement. He is the one that took our place and satisfied God's wrath against us and bore the penalty against our sins.
1: That may not be news for some of you guys. You've grown up in church, you've, you've known this since your whole lives, but you should recognize that there's a lot of different... <laughs> I don't want to overstate the case here but there's other congregations that would look at that and say that's not the way this works. Right. They would re-under- or reinterpret Romans 3 to mean something different than what we're suggesting to you right now.
0: And and that's just it it, it has to be that because verse 26 is is profound in its simplicity. If we're not righteous with Christ's righteousness, then there's still sin for us that needs to be atoned for and God can't justify us. Mm. He can't declare us righteous if there's unrighteousness in us. But because we have the righteousness of Christ that's ours through the great exchange that took place at the cross, that's the substitution. He took my place and got all my sin and all my guilt and all my condemnation, and I got his righteousness. Mm. And that's why verse twenty six can be true, that God can be just
1: and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus.
0: But you remember that reminder that you were gonna give me Pastor Rod?
1: Um, yes, pastor PJ reminder, uh, Psalm 68, you need to make a connection between Psalm 68 and Romans. 13. Awesome. Great. Thanks. You're welcome. We were talking about that, that end battle is not
0: going to be a battle at all. We were, we were talking about, there's not any shots fired, right. that, that God is just, he's God. So he, he just, just wills it to be things, done. Right. Yeah. Well, I wonder if you've ever thought about, Hey, um, why doesn't he just do that now? If, if there's no end battle, mm-hmm. what, what's, what's going on? Mm. Well, look again back at verse 25, we talked about propitiation, but look at the rest of it. This was to show God's righteousness because in his, now notice these two words here, divine forbearance. Forbearance means patient mercy, that God in his patient mercy overlooked former sins to show his righteousness at the present time, right? So that we might be justified by Christ because Christ could be the propitiation of our sins. Okay. So where am Mm. I going with this? Here's where I'm going going with this. God is is being patient with those that are still here and alive on earth right now. Could he come back tomorrow and end everything? Yes, he could. Yes, he could. But he's not because in his divine forbearance, still active right now, as we've talked about earlier already in Romans 2, that his divine forbearance is meant to lead us to repentance. His kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. There are still those to be saved that he is being patiently merciful with them, overlooking, so to speak, their sin right now so that they might come to faith in Jesus at some point in time according to his divine perfect plan. So it's not because he's trying to get swole enough to come back and take on (laughs) Satan. It's not that he's waiting for a big enough army to come back and take on
1: Satan. He's simply being patient to carry out the rest of his redemptive historical plan. That's right. And we play a role in that. One of the privilege roles that we have, is, even as you talked about in the in the last couple of weeks, Pastor PJ, we're here to to know Christ and to make Him known. We partner with Him in serving His glorious ends by making His name great among the nations, mm. telling them about who He is and what He's come to do. Yes, yes, we do,
0: we do. Verse thirty one. Just a, a, another note here that might be confusing to help us clarify. He says, "Do they? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith?" In other words, is is the law wrong? Is the Meganoita. Law... right? May it never be, by no means. Yeah, meganoita. it's the strongest emphatic no in the Greek language. He does this, I think, three times in the book of Romans, at least two. Romans 6, 1 as well. But here he says, by no means, and then he makes this kind of ambiguous statement a little bit. On the contrary, we uphold the law. We uphold the law. How do we uphold the law? Well the reason is, his reasoning here is not that we uphold the law by uh, putting it on us or putting it on other people remember that was what the the Jerusalem council was meeting back in the book of acts that we covered in acts chapter 15 they were trying to say do we need to have the gentiles obey the law and remember the whole conversation there how can we put something on them that even we ourselves and our forefathers couldn't hold right. up under right so it's not that we're putting the law on people but what are we doing here we're upholding the law because we're looking to Jesus as the one that perfectly fulfilled the law. Okay. So our faith is still, it's, our justification still has everything to do with perfectly obeying the law but not our obedience, but Jesus' obedience. And that's why his righteousness that we get is not just his righteousness as he's God, so he exists as a righteous entity, but it's his merited righteousness. It's why he needed to live, live 30 years on earth, perfectly obedient to the law before going to the cross, because we get that righteousness credited to our account. In that sense, the law is upheld still as good.
1: Yeah, and one of the things you have to keep in mind as you read stuff like this is, okay, what kind of law are we talking about here? Are we talking about the Mosaic law? Are we talking about civil, ceremonial or moral aspects of the law, it gets a little more choppy as you start diving into this. But recognize here what Paul is trying to say and what Pastor P.J. is reiterating is that the law is good. The law is Mm -hmm. a good thing. God did not mean for us to look at the law and be like, well, that was a bad idea in the first place. It wasn't God's second idea. This is God's plan of action here. The law is good. We uphold the law even as Christians. We uphold the law of God, the law that applies to Christians in the New Testament. We're all about that. Um, There are divisions of the law that you should be aware of, again, civil, ceremonial, and moral. We'll talk more about that as we continue on in this book, but hopefully you found all that helpful.
0: This is such a good time in the book of Romans as we are pivoting again into the good news. It's going to continue to get good from here. We're going to unpack so many more things, but I hope you're encouraged at the end of this episode today. I hope that you're encouraged to go out with this message. This is the gospel. This is what we are calling people to is not conformity, not legalism, not obedience in the, for the sake of obedience, but the obedience of faith, as it's put later, uh, that faith in Jesus as the propitiation of our sins. So we hope you guys will tune in again tomorrow for another episode of the Daily Bible Podcast. Bye, y'all.